Suppose that a hacker decided to target you one day and just methodically ruin your life or do something to someone you love that ruined their life, then how would you react? What the hell would you do? Would you try and get revenge? And if you did want to get revenge, how on earth would you even begin to go about it? And how on earth would you determine at what point you've been successful? That's one thing, maybe not the central thing, but it's one very important aspect of the plot of Second Sister, which is the book that we're looking at today in this episode. It's by Chan Ho Kei, a Hong Kong writer, and as a guest on the show, I haven't got Mr. Chan, I haven't got the translator of Second Sister, Jeremy Tiang, I've got a friend of the pod on the show for her third time, it's Michelle Dieter. So we're going to be looking at Second Sister and coming at it from as many angles as we can. Um, I didn't reread the book for this episode, so I read this one I think a year ago now. Michelle um, also read it quite a while ago, but we, we both sort of brushed up on um, on the plot and did our, did our best to give you guys an interesting and at times perhaps even deep conversation if you can believe it. But before we get to our conversation, before you hear from Michelle, there is of course the true terrific news, the translated Chinese fiction news. Now I've got five whole items today so I'll try and go through them all swiftly. Three of them are on one particular theme. Um, so we've got sort of a sandwich. That one theme is Chen Fan. So we have a Chen Fan sandwich, basically. The first news item, this is the bread. This is not about Chen Fan. It's, um, it's a little Zoom event that's coming up. It's Gwil Half and the Borderless Book Club, two little, I don't know what you call them, online presences that promote literature in various forms. They're teaming up for the International Translation Day um, to have, I think it's four, three or four publishers on to talk about some of their their work on translated lit. So they are Sinos Books, Fitzcarraldo Editions, V and Q Books, and Perine Press. And then there's a little panel of translators at the end who are going to talk about the problem of untranslatability. One of them is Christopher Payne, a Chinese to English translator who's done a few books with Sinoist. The Sinoist books section of the event is uh, it's with Nikki Harmon and Jun Liu, who are co-translators of an upcoming Japinghua translation that Sinoist is going to bring out. The English title for that is going to be Sojourn Tea House. I forget exactly which Japinghua book that is in the original Chinese, but I suppose if you know it, you could probably work it out from the English name. So yeah, that is that news item. Now we can get onto the Chenchufan sandwich, Stanleywich, I guess we could call it. That's his English name, by the way, Stan Stanley. Um, yeah, so the first of these three Chenchufan news items is actually about his co-author Kai Fu Li. Now the two of them have written a book that's come out recently called AI Twenty Forty One. And to help promote that book, I guess Kai Fu Lee has gone on a podcast called Intelligence Squared that I've recently started listening to, um, which shamelessly is targeting, in quote marks, elites as its um, listeners. You just have to listen to the sort of ads that appear on the show. It's quite funny. Ads for like investment um, companies and investment apps catering for uh, rich, rich idiots. But anyway, um, you don't have to be a rich idiot to listen to the show. Um, it's a pretty interesting one. Um, Kai Fu Lee talks about basically everything the book covers. If you if you haven't heard yet, um, his con- Kai, Kai Fu's contributions to the, the book are the non-fiction, sort of the predictions about where AI is going in the medium term. Chen Fan contributes short stories like within the framework of what Kai Fu Li thinks is possible, or within the bounds of what he thinks is possible. I've not read it yet, I will definitely be reading it, but the interview Kai Fu does with the host of Intelligence Squared is um, a good one to sort of whet your appetite. 
yeah, I, I, I could make fun of the, sh- the, the interviewer a little bit, um, but I won't. I'll leave it at that and go on to the next news item. It's, um, it's a TED video, not a TED talk, but some sort of TED video that our guy, Central Fan, did again to help promote AI 2041. I think it sort of runs through the day of a young woman who's living a few decades in the future and it looks at how technology, I guess specifically AI, changes her daily routine or makes her daily routine different from ours. Uh, that's all I can say about that. It, it cuts between that animation and Chencho Fan himself speaking with a sort of plain background. So yeah, it's there if you want to watch it. Um, now the third news item, this is um, meta news again. This is some self-promotion. On the Churchific Patreon feed, I did a 80 minute breakdown of one of uh, Stanley's stories coming of the light. This was as preparation for what should hopefully be an oncoming episode on the main feed, but what I did was I read it and as I read it I annotated on a Google Doc all my thoughts and then for this recording on the bonus feed I read the annotations and used them as a jump off point to sort of analyse the story. And what, what we ended up getting was partly analysis, partly trying to solve the story like a riddle or a puzzle box sort of thing. So. If you want to know more about the short story, or if you've read it and thought, what the fuck was that? Someone explain this to me. I think I've solved it. Maybe this story doesn't even have a solution. Maybe that is an, would annoy the author if I talked about it in that way. But I think, personally, this is a story that you need to read between the lines to sort of understand everything going on in, in its background. That's really where my analysis focuses on, is the background, not the foreground. And I think... That was an intention by the author, but even if it wasn't, I think it's a fruitful reading. So yeah, that's the end of our Chencho Fan Sandwich. Now the last news item, this is um, some Sinosphere literature that you can... Sinophone, sorry, some Sinophone literature that you can read for free. It's an excerpt that's been put up online by Words Without Borders. It is uh, an excerpt uh, from Ho Sok Fong's Maze Carpet. The excerpt is called Dark as a Boy. Now this was translated by Natasha Bruce, an esteemed translator of um, Chinese to English, who has done other translations from Ho Fox Song, including Lake Like a Mirror. I, I guess Natasha translated two short story collections from Ho Sok Fong. I say I guess, I'm reading this from the website, so I'm not guessing. Pardon me. Um, but yeah, Maze Carpet was the first of those collections published in translation, and the second was Lake Like a Mirror. Or perhaps... Maze Carpet wasn't published in fully in English, and this is an excerpt from it. Whatever, I don't really know. But um, the whole story is um, up there for you to read online for free in English, so do check it out. Okay, that is the end of the Church of Fake News. This is actually a second take. My first take was much more sensible, but um, I'd done something a bit stupid with my microphone, and most of it wasn't really viable. So that's why this time I mocked uh, the um, the neoliberal elite podcast and um, made some fun of myself. Uh, for abusing the English language there when I used I guess when I was actually 100% certain. Anyway, um, enough of my yammering and on with two-way yammering, the interview with Michelle Dieter. Hope you enjoy it. I think it was a good one, but I always say that, so why should you trust me? On the show, we have Michelle Dieter. Hello, Michelle. What's passed since we last spoke? on the show because we spoke in real life much <laughs> not very long ago i yeah not too much uh, a little bit of this a little bit of that i translated a couple of tattoos today so that was odd is it a client secret to tell us what they were 
Um, yes, technically, yes. Okay. Um, but just short, random stuff today. I'm also preparing for some teaching because I'll be teaching at Newcastle University again. Would you like to reintroduce yourself for any listeners who are hearing you for the first time? Maybe just a potted version. <laughs> yeah, so my name is Michelle Dieter. I am a Chinese-English translator and interpreter based in Manchester, the original Manchester in England. Um <laughs> Uh, I also teach, and um, it's great to be on the show acting as a reader today, because in the past I was acting more as a translator, and this way I don't feel bad gushing about this excellent translation. Right on. No, it's always good when I get someone who's um, just a reader. Um, before I ask you the first question about our book for today, a much more important question, what state is the American Manchester in? I know it exists, but I don't think I ever knew where it is in the country. There could be more than one. I know there's oh, one in true. New Hampshire. Right. Maybe that's the biggest one. Yeah, it's definitely one of the older ones, right? That would be in what we call New England. So, yeah. But right. there's one in Jamaica, right? There's probably one in Australia. They're all over. Yeah. I might have brought it up on the show before, but um, where I'm from, Dundee is supposedly one of six. And <laughs> I'm sure I mentioned this on the show. I visited one of them in Nova Scotia, and it's like some houses surrounding a swamp. And there's a little restaurant where I think we had fish and chips or something. Oh, how funny. Wow. Yeah, it was weird. Um, <laughs> but moving swiftly away from Nova Scotia to Hong Kong, which is the, um, that's the setting for our book that we're going to be talking about for this episode. It's Second Sister by Chan Ho Kei. I already gave you this disclaimer, but I'll do it for the listeners. I read this one quite a long time ago. I think almost a year ago, actually maybe exactly a year ago. So I've refreshed myself on the plot a bit, but um, I might be, uh, for tactical reasons, talking more about themes here or relying on Michelle to um, help, me, help me out a bit with the plot. We'll be um, fine. We should be okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but before we talk about the book, um, let's, let's look at the author, um, Chan Ho Kei, who is the first modern in like 21st century Hong Kong writer I've done on the show. Um, everyone else uh, from Hong Kong I've done has been a wuxia writer from decades past. Oh, so, of yeah. course. Yes. Yeah. We had um, Jin Yong. Yeah, Jin Yong. And then, um, damn it, what was he called? Gu Long. Yeah, Gu Long, who is like Hong Kong slash Taiwan. Although I've learned Chan Ho Kei himself is living in Taiwan these days. Is that correct? As far as I can tell, yes, but I didn't, you know, triple check those sources. So mm. <laughs> that's my guess. Right. And what you have some factoids on him, right? Yeah. So we just mentioned he's a Hong Kong writer who was born and raised there, and he definitely feels um, passionate love for his hometown. I found it really interesting that he studied computer science as his BA. It just made sense. I was like, oh, no wonder this story is like so perfectly executed. And one of the main characters is able to explain some really tricky hacker stuff, but it all makes sense. It's because he, he actually studied that um, very thoroughly. Uh, the other thing that I found really interesting is that he started reading Arthur Conan Doyle. So the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes when he was in his fifth or sixth year. So I assume that means when he was 10 or 11. Mm. So he was already kind of aware of the Western style of writing a mystery really, really early on. He got stuck in and then he started reading Gokumon Island by Seishi Yokomizo. 
And that author is Japanese, um, still a big influence for Chan Hoke. And for him, that was like this huge turning point because he realized that you could take a Western genre like mystery or crime fiction and you could set it in an Asian country like Japan. So he calls that kind of localizing. You're using these themes or these kind of beats that we would expect in the genre in the West, but you're completely putting it in the setting where you want to put it. He must read a lot, though, because when I saw some of his interviews and read some of his interviews, he would just cite like all these American authors and multiple mainland Chinese authors and Japanese authors. It's just incredible. So I, th I think that contributes to the way his work is kind of more fleshed out. Um, mm. Yeah. So that's some of the most interesting facts that I found. The one last thing I would probably add is that he thinks crime fiction can be simplified into whodunit how done it and why done it or a combination of those three elements but he's not really that enthused by the who done it because the who done it is just you know who is the killer normally but you have to have the killer be someone in the set of characters that's introduced fairly, fairly close to the beginning of the story otherwise the reader will feel cheated and he enjoys the how done it and the why done it more because you have more possibilities you can probably put a twist in there and you can make it more exciting so I just think it's so interesting that I have not seen that many stories in Chinese that are so aware of the mechanics to to make the story good. Yeah, it felt like um, uh, what you say a, a mystery by a guy who is a mis a writer of mysteries for people who read mystery novels. It felt like that was a big part of the thrill, sort of a, a technical thing. Um, now you mentioned the, a, a Japanese mystery author. Um, yeah, a mystery author who was a big influence on him. And a thing that um, jumps right out at anyone who's holding a copy of um, Second Sister in their hand, like I am, if they're looking at the back where the author and translator mini bios are, it says about Chan Hoke that in 2011, he won the Soji Shimada, the biggest mystery award in the Chinese world. And that jumps right out at me because Soji Shimada, I suppose, yeah, no, there's no SO character in in Mandarin, is there? So it, you know that it, this can be a Mandarin word. This is almost certainly the name of someone Japanese. And I confess I've not done much more than Google the guy, but Soji Shimada is uh, a Japanese novelist from um, from Fuku, Fukuyama in uh, Hiroshima Prefecture. So I don't know if you know a great deal about this, but from what I've gathered, the, like it seems like there's a fair amount of influence from the Japanese, from Japan in China's like mystery and detective uh, genre fiction. Do, do you know much about that more than me and my sporadic Googling? <laughs> I, I would say that you're probably on track as far as I'm aware. Yes, it's possible that there's more stuff translated from Japanese into Chinese and vice versa. So they would have a longer history of influencing each other. And um, it seems that the kind of like the taxonomy or the way that they structured the genre of mystery in China is completely lifted off the way they structure it in Japan. So in Western mystery, we have our cozies, we have hard-boiled, we have noir, mm. and that could be our, our taxonomy, you know what I mean? Yep, yep. Whereas in Japan, there's two styles. There's one that's called like classic or orthodox, and then the other one is called social style or social faction, meaning trying to be realistic and reflecting social issues. So yeah, so he realizes that all these different um, 
kind of boxes exist, but he doesn't really fit in any of those boxes. The fact that he knows what a cozy is means he can choose to just sprinkle some of those elements in his book if he wants to. I find it really fun. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I can actually see looking at this Soji Shimada um, Wikipedia page, it says he's the pioneer of the Shin Honkaku, which means new orthodox logic <laughs> mystery genre. So he must be on that camp. And like I was saying about Second Sister, there is a feeling that there's a technical like mystery for the sake of a mystery. So that might that might put it in the orthodox camp, but it deals with some real social issues. Um, it's it's um, I guess sexual assault or yeah 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 exactly. groping if we're being really specific and nast- nasty things that sort of orbit around that in in society in Hong Kong and that leads me to a couple other um points and this is all Michelle's search by the way um a couple of factoids you found so he in his relation to Hong Kong he says he was born and raised there so of course I have feelings for that for it for Hong Kong and you've also got he said he thinks all Hong Kong writers have values so that's that's really interesting that he's um he's ascribing feelings and values to the place although not necessarily spelling out why it's 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 an assumption for him that if you're a Hong Kong writer you you have values that presumably there's something socially concern some social concern in you and probably in your writing too so yeah I'm I don't know if I have a question there for you but um I agree. Maybe we'll get more onto that later. <laughs> no, it's interesting. He definitely has a foot in the Orthodox camp and still a foot in the social issues camp, as far as I can tell. But that's part of what makes it so fun. Like it's a page turner because you want to know like how to undo the puzzle or how the puzzle is solved. And yet it's a really interesting look at Hong Kong. I don't know if you've ever been, Angus, but I've been a few times. Been twice. Yeah. So it just feels very real. It feels um, extra chilling because it's not some evil character that is um, so over the top that you would never think you could meet someone like that in your life. Mm. It's folks who have motivations and who kind of operate in a way that still sort of makes sense, (laughs) which is, yeah, uh, just makes it more interesting on like a deeper level and on the reread. Yeah, um, my experience of Hong Kong both times, it's like a lot of um, mainland Chinese expats dropping in for a long weekend. That was that was me both times, just in and out in like two or three nights. And so I got a, a strong feel of like what it's like to walk in, about in the city, um, but not really what the society is like, what it is to, to work there. Um, and th- this thing that I got from the book wasn't like a landscape portrait of the society um oh it's breadths and alleyways but more like it's um a, a vertical look at the city the strata where we have some very ordinary people living in not great, great conditions in one of the big high rises our our main characters and then we've got a guy who's um our villain because we know who he is from the start he doesn't seem like he's particularly wealthy either but he's he's in like the office grind sort of um zone of hong kong yeah but we do see glimpses of like the higher what would you say the higher strata the business elite of society and then our detective n seems to be a guy who's deliberately extricated himself from all of that like he lives in a very grim building but seems to access a huge amounts of funds is able to pass into the 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 wealthier spheres but doesn't really it's hard to even know who he really is but it seems like he prefers to live uh, on cheap food 
depend <laughs> if he's if he has a choice he'll go to the and he the can swim in whatever areas. circles that's something that surprises his client very early on it's like hang on uh, normally you wear flip-flops right like how are you able to put on this smooth voice and this you know polite demeanor to make people think that you're actually very well educated and you know <laughs> from maybe a different class even not to compare positively or negatively but that's one thing that made it feel really different from um not all but a lot of mainland chinese fiction i've read um it's just a very different it's like a more well funnily enough if it's just one city squished into not a lot of space then weirdly enough feels like a much more compressed claustrophobic society than or society captured in fiction than most other uh, mainland chinese stuff i've read mm. so we, we already talked about this being hong kong lit um and i've bookmarked that as important on this show because we never really probably dived into it before but i wanted to ask you michelle um what's your experience with hong kong lit like how much have you read or have you had any engagement with it as a as a translator or have you met interesting people who had interesting things to say about it like what's your experience um i haven't translated any hong kong lit yet um i guess my door is always open <laughs> um i have read um some short stories by honline chu and by dorothy tse um and i read the bar road which is another book by chan ho Kei. Um, also, I've read the book by Jin Yong that you mentioned. I completely forgot that he's a Hong Kong writer because mm. it takes place in a, you know, a fictional past. But he's definitely a Hong Kong writer. That's just a great example. So it's it's limited. I think, um, yeah, I'll, I'll have to go seeking it out more because this has been so much fun to both read and reread. Absolutely. Um, I should ask you as well, what's your experience Um in Hong Kong, the real place. What's what 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 did you see when you were there? Um, so I've been to Hong Kong twice, like with a guide, right, with a friend who is actually a local, and I've been another two or three times where I was supposedly the local, even though <laughs> I'm American and you know I only lived in Guangdong Province um, across the bay. Um, so what was really interesting though about being there with my friends was kind of seeing how long the hours were that they worked and like the teeny tiny apartments that they had and all the shortcuts and the special things they knew about kind of getting around in the city. I found that to be really, really eye-opening. And even then, right, it's only a sample size of two. <laughs> it's not like I saw all of Hong Kong society, but um, had lunch a couple of times like in a picnic in a park and stuff so we saw a lot of cleaners also having their lunch just kind of out in the sunshine and you can tell like if you know what to look for you can tell that the city does have just so many different people of different backgrounds and um just about everybody has to work to the bone to just get enough to survive so i did find that even though the first few chapters can feel almost like he's putting it on real thick actually i've just met so many people that really do work as hard as our uh, older sister uh character in the book yeah it, what you said there about getting around that is um that's one thing i remember um it was so different from navigating like Shanghai or Beijing. One reason, because again, verticality, there's lots of slopes in um, a lot of the city, um, but like the public transport feels pretty different. Um, there are, there's that really long, uh, what is it? Es escalator? 
Yeah. Yeah, the longest escalator in the world or one of them. And the ferries, that was one of my favorite things visiting the city, just as a tourist, ferrying out to Lama Island. And you go from being in this um, intense cosmopolitan mega city and then you're on like this beach paradise um and yet you can see like a power station what's the word i'm, I'm really not on it today uh power station chimneys not so far away it was it was a trip um in more than one sense and the, the book's <laughs> a trip too yeah yeah exactly but again it doesn't feel like um anything is done just for the like dramatic effect it feels like these are real people and that's part of the fun. Yeah. 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 I, getting back to the book, you're right. Um, the sets, some of the settings are sort of um, cinematic, like some of the business settings. Um, yes. Yeah. It does feel like a movie at points, but like we go into the nitty gritty of people's lives, like s- schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, I remember the stuff about um, rent and the, the, the um, main character's family getting sort of screwed over and just in their working situation. So the yeah. property and property is a huge issue in Hong Kong, but that, that comes in as well. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a gritty social realist book, but like those things are there and you can see that they're not just something uh, Chan Ok wanted in to put a bit of an, um, wanted in there to give the book a bit of an edge. It's because they're just real things going on in, in Hong Kong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we've talked a bit about um, the setting. I would could try and talk more about it, but I just embarrass myself. I'm going to throw in one quick thing. Um, hopefully, it's not too much of a curveball. But I just wanted to say I see I've seen that this book has something like three different publishers in English translation. I think maybe because those are that's for different uh, zones like North America, UK, and maybe it's changed hands uh, once or twice. I think but the third one is Canada. Yeah. Yeah, right, three different markets. Right. Okay, states. So the states, the US and Canada. Uh, sorry, the states, the UK and Canada. And the UK edition is from Head of Zeus, who are, yes. for whatever reason, they're one of the best tr- uh, publishers, I think, of English translated Chinese fiction. But they're because they have a lot of great translated Chinese sci-fi they've picked up from Tor and taken a bit further on their own. But they've got some really interesting other translated Chinese books and. These two Chan Ho K books we mentioned, this one, uh, Second Sister and The Borrowed, are up there. And the the design on this hardback is just beautiful. It's so nice. It's got crisp colors. It's included some Chinese characters on it. Um, so like it has a hook line in English of gossip, rumor, revenge, just very small going horizontally. But then vertically in the traditional Chinese characters, it's got the same, the same words as uh, two character words. And yeah, it's one of, just design-wise, it's one of my favorite books I've done for the show. It's on my shelf, easily. <laughs> just wanted to say that. Um, now we can go on to the, uh, talking about the actual plot. So I'm going to give a really, really cod summary, uh, not even summary, like synopsis, sales pitch. And then maybe you could, if, if you feel there's any really key stuff I've missed, you could you could fill it in. Does that sound all right? Yeah. And for all the listeners, this is your spoiler warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we are, we're going to adopt a, we don't care policy to spoilers. So if you, if you really don't want to know how any of the mystery unfolds, then read the book and come back later. That's all I That's can right. say. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're, we're in Hong Kong and right at the start of the book, uh, 
Ayi or Nayi um, finds that her 15 year old sister, Xiaoman, has committed suicide, um, but she doesn't really want to believe it. And I think we're, we're led to believe that she committed suicide because she was being sexually, she had been sexually harassed, groped on the, the MRT, which is the underground in Hong Kong. I hope I've got the acronym right. MTR. MTR. <laughs> MTR. Good thing I checked. Um, the MTR. And um, it seems like she was uh, bullied online and this may have led to the death. I believe that's that's how it goes. But uh, Nayi has her suspicions. She thinks there's foul play involved. So she seeks out a, a private eye and she gets about the best private eye she could have possibly hoped for. Um, a guy called, going by the name of N. Um, but it takes some persuasion. N is, it seems, what does he say? He only takes cases that he's interested in and he's not interested, but um, he, he seems to go along with it. And they embark on a highly digital 21st century um, e-investigation with a lot of traditional Sherlock Holmes style sleuthing involved, like on the ground investigation involved as well. So like the bit I remember best is they're scoping out the school that um, Xiaoman went to and that involves getting through like poorly protected systems to find class lists. Um, I think N maybe impersonates people in group chats as well to get info, but also showing up in disguise as a concerned parent and stuff. So there's really <laughs> yes. interesting um, offline and online um, investigation and hacking. Um, so there's a, there's a term um, called social hacking. Have you heard of social that? Social engineering. Social, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, where like, what's the simplest way for me to um, steal someone's, like hack someone's bank account? Well, it would be to look over their shoulder and um, see them enter the pin. So there would still be a, um, there could be still some digital hacking involved there, but there will be there could be social or just physical boots on concrete um, actions you can do that make the hack that much smoother and faster and more potent. And that's as far from something I'm interested in. Sorry, far from something I'm expert in, but something I find very interesting. So anyway, there's there's we have we have we have all that going on. And meanwhile, um, like we said, like you said, um, Channel K doesn't like whodunits. So we basically know who our baddie is. It's a guy called Chung Nam, I believe. Is that right? Yes. Jungnam, um, who's a sleazy fellow inside, um, but to his colleagues on the outside, seems like a sort of a normal um, office worker. And he's he's a horrible piece of shit. And he's the guy who's sort of behind. I guess we don't, I'm not going to spoil all the twists and turns, but he's he's the killer, essentially. Um, and the, the thrill of the book is sort of finding out how, how uh, N is going to lead Nayi to that conclusion. I yes. think that's about the best summary I can do. Do you think there's anything we really need to add? Um, yeah, so I, I totally agree that um, N figures out who, uh, he thinks that there's a team working together and he figures out who that's going to be very early on. Um, so we kind of have to follow the Luddite technophobe Nai, oh, yeah, or I should have mentioned that. Yeah. To uh, understand like how he's coming to these conclusions and to understand that it's easy to follow a hunch, but you need to be open to other possibilities. Um, so, 
you know, all the twists and turns are like laying in wait in the later chapters, but you're just going like, wait, what happened now? Wait, what happened now? Um, so it's it's very useful to have this character who doesn't even know what the onion brooder is. Um, so, you know, then you get the opportunity to explain what Tor is and to explain how social engineering works. And it's great, though, as well. She gradually learns. So she attempts social engineering on the security guard at the school at one point. Um it's it's funny. I just think that's great. A little kind of way to make sure that all the readers can understand, even if they don't know everything about the internet, like N does. Yeah, that was the, that was a really key thing. I should have mentioned that she is is the word. I don't know if the word luddite is used, but she's um, she's more than just a technophobe. She's um, like some like there are people who are just not so good with technology and don't seek it out, and then there's people who must have actively avoided it because they're so completely clueless and they're you know they're under the age of 60 um <laughs> so yeah she's 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 that that foil she's sort of you could say a bit of a watson to his sherlock although i don't think watson is um that uh, he, he wasn't a luddite um did, did yeah. you find her believable um given that she's not you know she's not she's not a granny um but she's totally clueless about really basic stuff did, did it did it strain um what's the word the suspension of disbelief yes, was able it, to hold it i there guess you go. did it strain your stension the suspension of disbelief i think there were some parts where it graded a little bit because um n is always so caustic and uh making fun of her all the time it's like come on you know she's trying her best and she's <laughs> grieving as well um but in other ways it's like Hong Kong is such a modern city, like surely even just to talk to the housing authority, you would have to know how to make an application online. Um, so yeah, there's there's a couple of parts where I think she might be able to do this on her own. And so it seems a little unbelievable, but you get over it, I find. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Uh, yeah, their, their relationship is quite funny. And you're right, He's um, he, he comes across as a real... <laughs> real bastard towards her <laughs> to the point yes. that it is just quite funny um and i like i couldn't tell is probably it's intentional i couldn't tell well is is he really is he really this nasty or is he um just sort of what's the word like pretending to be unfriendly so as not to um so as to create a you know a professional boundary or you know or with a new yeah. person have a buyer and then I also wondered, wait, is this going to be the cheesy thing where the offer starts off with them hating each other? And then by book three, they're married and they've got a kid. Oh, God. <laughs> um, I thought it might go there. And I wasn't, I don't know. I, I didn't. Spoiler, think it, was, it doesn't go there. No, no, no. I, was gonna say, I, didn't th- I could see that being done well, but um, I kind of didn't really want it to. And sure enough, it doesn't, doesn't go there. Um, N does show he has, um, that he doesn't hold um, her in total contempt, but um, it's not really clear that he has a normal personality in that sense, where he has a warm side. From yeah. what I remember, he has yeah. he has a core. It's just not that kind of core. <laughs> yeah. So we we learn a lot about those two characters. Nai and N are our two main characters. Shioman, of course, she can't speak for herself, but uh, we kind of get glimpses of her through um, interviews with her classmates and reading some of her messages and things. Um, and so another thing that I find almost unbelievable, but at the same time, people really do work that hard, um, is how little the older sister knows about her sister when they actually live together. Mm-hmm. 
she just she keeps on getting completely surprised at how much a 15 year old girl can hide or, you know, not share her emotions. Sometimes I find that to be a little unbelievable. But for the most part, I think, yeah, you know, moody teenagers, they can <laughs> they can have layers. <laughs> oh, no, um, not not to divulge um, my the world of my um my family and my extended family but if you um if you ever think you completely know um a relative and they don't have some piece of information that can throw you one or flip everything on its head um think again (laughs) okay fair enough yeah um i think it sounds like a deliberately edgy thing to say um you can never really know someone completely but um I think I think there's truth to that. Um, you can never know if you know someone completely. There's always room for for doubt. Even even if you do, you can never be certain that you do. That's that's my opinion. Hmm. Can we talk about the names? Can we talk oh, about we the side characters? Yeah. Do so it. yeah, so we have Nai and Xiu Man and Cheng Nam, who all have very Hong Kong sounding names, and then the classmates of Xiu Man all have English names. Mm-hmm. And I did just a tiny bit of research. I didn't actually read the Chinese original, but I um, looked at a couple of synopsis and things. And I thought for a second, hang on, there's no English names in here. Like, where did they come from? So Jeremy very helpfully told me how that came about. Let's Uh, pause here. The translator is friend of the pod, Mr. Jeremy Tiang. Yes, my friend of the podcast. Jeremy Tiang, uh, let us know how these English names came about. Uh, he and Chan Ho Kei met at the Macau Literature Festival while Jeremy was still translating the novel. And they sat down in a cafe um, and kind of thought about what the names could be for uh, basically these other 15-year-olds that Xiu Man knew. Um, Ho Kei came with a list for names of characters. And uh, they kind of talked about which one should be posh, you know, like Miranda's pretty posh and Violet sounds very nice as well. I found them very, very believable. Mm, yeah. And then Jeremy picked Violet because um, the Chinese has the word or the character for purple in it. So Violet is a pretty appropriate name. Um, yeah. So that is something that doesn't exist in the original, but I think it's just an added layer that just makes the English all that better. And it's cool that they could cooperate like that in person. Yeah, no, that's um, that's a great thing to point out. Um, I I think Violet, she is she is. You know, how some people um are a really good match for their name. They just embody their name, and other people are um, it's just a coincidence. You know, there's no real aesthetic connection between the person and the name. But uh, that character Violet is a Violet. Yeah, yeah. In in all her good and nasty qualities, if you see what I mean. <laughs> Um, it's funny, actually, I'm pretty sure when, when Jeremy was on the show with Yanga talking about Strange Beasts of China, I, I, I did my, my fancy pants word drop of the episode, um, and, or term terminology drop, uh, nominative, nominative determinism, the idea that things become what they are in some way because of their name. <laughs> it's just funny that that comes up again in relation to, to Jeremy. <laughs> I also wanted to say, um, he's, I shouldn't name favorites, but I think out of things I've read, he's one of my favorite translators um, of, of English language translated Chinese fiction. I think it really shows that he's a writer. Um, and yes. like the prose in this translation, it's not flashy. It's not Rococo, as Ron Revere described uh, his other translation, Strange Beasts of China. It's mm. much more just serving the story, I think, which would be appropriate, I think, for a crime story. But it's really 
smooth and slick and readable. And you can tell that um, he's he's picked his words and assembled his sentences better than other translators might, or many other translators. And I think that's because he's a great writer. And I, I, I completely I, agree. Completely agree. He's a great speaker. He's a great writer. He takes the time to read passages out loud to make mm-hmm. sure that they actually flow. And even in terms of research time, he said he visited some of the places in the book in real Hong Kong to right. make sure that the setting looked correct, that you know the description of the MTR and everything was as correct as it could be, especially nowadays, um, people would call you out if you describe something in Hong Kong in a way that wasn't really true. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. that attention to detail and that kind of um, doggedness to getting everything un- like working it out, working it out until it really is perfect. That does make it an enjoyable read. And like you said, he's uh, adaptable to different styles, different genres, uh, which is Really impressive, honestly. It's true what you say that um, in the era of the smartphone, anyone could drop by the real place, um, document it on their phone, and be like, "Well, this this looks nothing like um, what it was in the book." <laughs> Definitely, like when I visited places that were settings in stories I loved, or settings in a story I was going to try and write or had written without having been there, you do. I felt anyway a little bit like a sleuth because um, you're connecting things that you only had as ideas with a real place. I was going to say, or it occurred to me to say when you mentioned Sioman being present, but not being able to speak because she's, Mm. she's dead. She's um, she exists in the book's past. And this is not the angle uh, later, later in the episode, I'm going to try and get um, all smarty pants and quote quote an (laughs) academic book, but it's going to be genre uh, genre theory rather than like weird philosophy, which is where I usually try and take things. Um, Time is a recurring theme in these stupid things I bring up, but the time and detective stories do have something interesting going on together because they're almost always an attempt to rebuild a time in the past, reconstruct it or resurrect it. And yeah, and that's Something I found pretty interesting learning about um, what Sioman's life was. Sioman's life was in relation to the people she knew, and that being someone, someone in the Goodreads reviews for this book I was look, looking at mentioned that it was sort of like getting three plots for one. And I wasn't totally sure what those three plots would actually. No, I think I do know what they would be. One would be um, the main de- in the investigation following our mm-hmm. male and female protagonist. One would be the sort of replay um of the last days of Xiao Man and then the other would be following Chong Nam as he tries and fails to wash the blood off his hands, figuratively speaking. So yeah, um time time is time is an interesting one in any detective story, but where we're using the internet, which freezes time and archives it, I think is especially interesting. Yeah, it's really cool how as well like specific moments in time are recorded by the internet, but because I is not so interested in the internet, she records time more emotionally. Mm. And um, she's often off the mark. Like I'm not saying that her memories are accurate or that her emotions like correctly read the situation, but she's kind of using a different metric to see the same story in the same events. So I think that that's an interesting layer as well that I haven't seen as much 
and other detective stories. No, that, yeah, that is interesting. Um, I'm not, I'm not pointing a finger, accusing or quizzing here. Did, did you listen to the last episode I did with Shenyang and Nikki? Yes. Okay. Do you remember I mentioned um, Professor Robert Winston's TV show where he made a guy cry by feeding him porridge from? Uh, yes, because he remembered. Yes, his time in World War II and right. porridge brought him right back. Yeah. Yeah, and there he was. That was an emotional or some kind of non-rational uh, memory bringing back something real from the past. But there was another thing on that show um, where Professor Winston um, had a go at showing these various people who all, were all something like 40-odd pictures f- from like the 70s or something of uh, from the ground of a balloon in the air and a little, just a very barely visible kid's head poking over the bas- the balloon's basket, hot, a hot air balloon. Um, and he told each person individually, oh, this was a picture of you from when you were a kid. You were on that hot air balloon and <laughs> it rose and you were waving to your parents and you were a little worried that you weren't going to see them again or, or something like that. And they checked to see how many people then would say, yeah, I do remember that. And I don't know if it was more than half, but a significant number of the people said, oh, yeah, I think I do remember that. And I think it's maybe no coincidence there that they were using an emotional event to, mm. to create a, that distorted false memory. So, yeah, that is that is an interesting thing. But I was mostly just taking the chance to bring up that TV show again, because those are the only two things I remember from it. <laughs> but I think they're really illustrative. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Okay, um, let's get back on point. The next, the next point I was going to try and hit was the characters. We've talked a bit about them already. Nai, Xiaoman, and uh, the killer, Chong Nam. Maybe we should talk about Chong Nam, because we've talked a little bit about um, the, the two young women already. We've talked a bit about N already, but we've not said much about the villain. So do you want to start us off there? Because... I yeah. think once <laughs> once we get going, my memory might start resurrecting some of my emotional impressions. So he's um, he's very narcissistic. We can kind of tell that he looks down on his colleagues and definitely looks down on his boss. He's um, definitely ambitious. And then we have a couple of passages that show that when he was younger, people didn't think he would make much of himself. So he still kind of has something to prove or he has a chip off his shoulder. He's going to become more than just an office worker. He's going to become like a tech titan or something. Right. So every chance he gets um, to meet an investor, to meet with a Westerner, he thinks this is it. I'm going to be able to start my own company now and be, you know, this amazing startup founder, uh, just so many ideas. Um, the thing that really brings him down is the fact that he, I think they call it, gives in to his, his darker desires or his uh, darker impulses. And so no matter how much ambition or even hard work he puts in, he's not going to get very far. Yeah. Um, no, that's brought a lot of memories back. Yeah. He's human all too human in a way. Um, that where he's like he's in that particular band of um iq levels where he's pretty smart but he also grossly overestimates his intelligence and yes <laughs> i think i'm probably in that band <laughs> that's I a think, good point yeah a lot of people do that i probably do that too yeah what am i trying to say i thought he was a compelling villain because that thing of having a default derision f- for other people i'm a little bit guilty of that sometimes and 
I think what makes me different from Chong Nam, I hope, is that I, I recognize it and try try not to listen to it. I think it's, it's a little bit of maybe arrested development. I think it's quite a teenage way um, mm. of going, going through your life. So maybe it's um, not so surprising then that he's, his dark, some of it, his darker desires involve, like, I guess, what, sexually harassing and abusing teenage girls he's yeah and controlling people you know calling them his slave and it sounds like keeping them locked up like he's really doing stuff that is disgusting yeah yeah pretty horrible and yeah i guess it controls the thing there this this character isn't really in control of his own destiny but really wants to be in all the ways he describes by being a big boss but there is another hot nasty way of doing it controlling people much more powerless than himself, younger people. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think I've got much more of a, a take on the, the guy than that. I did think the, the obsession with American businessmen was, was interesting. Um, <laughs> that was one thing, that one of very few things that reminded me of, of mainland China. Um, mm-hmm. Slightly unfortunate fixation on someone just because they've got you know, the, a country's name attached to them. And the other things were going completely tangentially. Um, the visit to the wonton shop where our, our heroes go and get some cheap noodles. That could have been mainland China, easy peasy. And the, the experience of riding the metro, um, mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of... Oh, yeah. A packed metro, you would get that. Yeah, yeah. any metro anywhere. But the, um, that's where the the groping incident happened. So I guess... That can take different forms in different countries, uh, different contexts. I don't know how much we want to go into that. Um, that might bring us back to the villain. But do you, do you want to talk about any more of the, the characters or do you want to talk about metros? Yeah, let's move on to uh, transportation and how like society views people doing things, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, I remember when I was living in Shanghai, they had to go experimenting with women's only carriages. Um, I think they color coded them pink. I think that was Shanghai. I think they might have done it in other cities. Um, yes. Hangzhou maybe got there oh. first, perhaps. Um, and I think around the same time in the UK, there may have been talk of having like women and children's carriages. But f- I don't know. I don't know if anything ever came of came of those things or if they were just passing experiments. I, I don't know either. Um, I grew up in a town that didn't have um, a subway. So some of this is stuff that I've only learned as an adult, but it's um it's interesting how um like Xiomun is not the one to talk up. There's someone else who witnesses the uh, assault happening and says, "No, you need to report this. I'm going to take you uh, to the police. Let's report this together." And so that's part of it that I find very um, believable because it would be not only embarrassing, but just so shaming, even though Shoman shouldn't feel like she's done anything wrong because she hasn't. So I thought that that was very realistic that some people don't even realize what's happening. And then one woman kind of takes it upon herself to turn this into a big deal. And then it just keeps snowballing because uh, it does end up going to court and that has consequences, right? That is uh, indecent assault, I think is what they end up calling it, but it is, it's sexual assault in this country. Yeah. I think in your, your notes, you sent me before, before we um, got on the line, you mentioned one sign that this is a, um, definitely Hong Kong, maybe compared with the mainland, possibly, is that this 
this incident is taken seriously. Mm. Um, I mean, it's 2021, so I'm not going to say that uh, first tier cities in China would look as you know look away as much. I think there's starting to be more cases of saying, okay, sexual assault is not okay. But still, the fact that um, the person went to court, was prosecuted, and had to spend time in jail, the fact that all these things happened and that um, these forums were open so that people could talk about uh, both the victim and the, um, I guess, the alleged (laughs) uh, person who does the groping, that uh, perpetrator, let's say, Whereas that's something in China, they wouldn't necessarily have that forum to discuss it, or it would be briefly discussed. And then within a couple of hours, that discussion would be shut down. Um, But that's kind of key to the novel is the fact that so many people can be discussing, like, did this girl deserve it? Or, you know, is she a slut? That couldn't happen in China, that kind of social um, buildup in that discussion. Yeah. I'm not trying to completely switch switch the the um, topic away here, but um, you mentioned it's 2021. I thought it would be good to say that given that this is a very internet centric book, um, mm. it would be good to note what's the gap between the publication in the original Chinese and um, the English. And um, the Taiwanese publication was 2017. This edition by Head of Zeus is 2020. I don't know if um, it says also English translation copyright by Jeremy Chiang, 2020. So I guess there's not a gap between this edition and the, the like the Canadian or US ones. Mm. Um, so I guess the internet did transform a lot from 2017 to 2020, but not fundamentally. It's not like where I think when I did um, Death Notice, that was mm. um, from like 2014, 15, but purposely set in like 2005 so that the internet didn't <laughs> completely kill, <laughs> play a role, <laughs> didn't make the investigation take five minutes. Um it's but funny. getting back to your point, um, I thought this was interesting um, because when um, oh, um, when N is explaining the intricacies of the internet and IP addresses and accessing so and so site, it sound all of that sounds like it would more or less work here in the UK because Hong Kong's I don't know. Well, perhaps I should caveat this and say I could be slightly wrong here, but it's part of um, the global internet. It's not a national internet in the same way that China is, the mainland China is being cut off from um, internet norms by the the Great Firewall. So that is another thing that makes this definitely Hong Kong lit is that it's online. If you were going to make an online detective story in the PRC, well, it probably would be hard to get published. But even if you, even if it didn't cause any problems, the internet landscape that the characters would be navigating would be just so different Um, Because even if I don't make any positive or negative comment about internet censorship or sort of how every app and website in PRC is domestic and national rather than international, even if I take any value judgment out of that, it just makes things inherently different, a really different system. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Accidentally, that's led me really nicely to the next point, Um, the hacking. So we we already mentioned that there was social engineering involved and it was pretty fun to read, especially as um, uh, <laughs> yes. IE, IE um, gets a little bit more adept herself. But j- just in general, like what, what did you make of it as a reader? 
Uh, yeah, uh, I remember the first time around just thinking that Chan Ho Kei must have done a really impressive job in research. And then when I, you know, started listening to interviews and things, I was like, oh, he knew about this all along. Like, this is just background knowledge that he happens to have because that's what his degree was in. So the the whole story made a little bit more sense when I realized that Um I do think it's incredible, like the way he's able to explain a man in the middle attack and then have something funny like a killer rabbit, which I think is a Monty Python reference, but I can't confirm that. Mm, um, I'm sure it is. To just kind of, uh, you know, make it both colorful and to explain things, but without kind of using a magic wand. It's like, no, this is doable. If you're in a cafe using public Wi-Fi, this is doable. Um, it just really enriches the story, I find. Yeah. I'm going to bring this one up later, but have you ever heard of or watched um, Mr. Robot TV show? No. Well, I, um, I won't bother um, going into like the plot or the themes because there's a lot going on there. A big part of it is that we're following a hacker and he's very much a hacker in like the from the N school, except <laughs> he I think he could have amassed some wealth for himself, but he never does. One, one theme is he's trying to bring down uh, the wealthy. But yeah, it's it's equally entertaining because a lot a lot of the hacking. In fact, the the opening scene, um, he's in. Uh, I guess I'll spoil it. So if you guys don't want to have the first scene of Mr. Robot spoiled, shut your ears. But um, <laughs> he's in a cafe. He manages to um, invite the owner over for a chat, and he tells the owner he's noticed that of all the cafes he's visited to like hack or to go online this one has like a super fast connection it's got like hyper optic speed and that made him curious he couldn't leave it alone and i won't spoil what he uncovered but he tells the owner look i've i've learned that you're you're up to no good so yeah there's there's like the physical the way physical spaces fit in with the internet and hacking i just find that really interesting that it's not all totally virtual physical access um mm-hmm. via one way or another <laughs> drones and things drones. yeah yeah totally drones using drones to do things like that devices um there's there's one more thing i'm going to say about this I, I have a friend who's at dundee's Aberté university which is lower ranked than dundee's other uni uh, dundee university but it is it has a really good like computing and digital department and i've got a friend there who um after as an, I guess, an older student, a student in his late twenties, is doing an undergrad in uh, ethical hacking, and mm-hmm. I, I really wanted to talk to him about that um, because, because of the show, Mister Robot. I was like, "Do you watch it?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, "Is it, is it, is it, <laughs> is that is what he does? Is that hacking?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah." Um, and he, my friend, he's called Brian. He gave me a really interesting example of physical access in relation to hacking. He said, like. Um, some pl- like if you want to hack a power grid or a f- like a hidden server system, sometimes, especially in a country like Scotland, the place where the hardware is stored will be like way out in the middle of nowhere in a field and mm. with no paths and possibly quite dangerous terrain. And part of the hacking involves getting to that building and getting in the door. And then you're in a prime position because no one, no security guards assuming you haven't triggered an alarm no security guard is going to come in and stop you and from there you can turn off a wind farm or something um so that's like the opposite kind of physical access in the claustrophobic world of second sister but um if listeners are tickled by these sort of ideas then this is like just it's just a perfect book 
Definitely. It just feels like there's this element of spy and counter spy going on, um, but you're still enjoying a detective novel at the same time. It's just has so much going on. I think there's something for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think we can move on to our next um, section of questions where we're going to do a little bit of investigation and analysis. Um, the first thing we're going to um, interrogate is this book as a portrait of life in Hong Kong. Now we've kind of already done that. Um, we've basically already answered the question, could this book be set anywhere by answering no um, or yes and no? Because like internet wise could maybe be anywhere, but in terms of social issues, there's plenty of things which are specifically Hong Kong. Um, so I've got um, I've got an interesting way of framing this um, because previously on on the, on the show, first time you came on this podcast, we talked about another crime novel that you translated, and that was The Untouched Crime by, oh man, Ch- Chen. Sijin Chen. Sijin, mm-hmm. Yeah, Chen Sijin, Sijin Chen, right. I was going to say Sijin. <laughs> His name doesn't make any sense. I think he has a two-character surname. Like, it's, it's, he has three surname characters. It's so oh, weird. right. Okay. Interesting. Anyways. <laughs> huh. um, yes, yeah, so we did that one, and that was... Well, I won't. I won't do all the analysis myself, but that one was definitely mainland China, and yet the setting of Hang, the nominal setting of Hangzhou, didn't really have much bearing. I think. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, but, um, I think so too. Yeah, but how do you think the setting of that book compares with this one? Um, aside from the importance or the uh, the featuring of a noodle shop, uh, I think that the the, the noodle the noodle um, little noodle house in Untouched Crime had a very similar vibe to me to the one in Hong Kong, but I can't think of many parallels apart from that. But what what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that um, part of what makes this book so engrossing and so fun is the fact that um, the every single page feels real. Um, the school feels real and uh, you just have so many details that there's maybe there's two reasons why that's not achieved in the untouched crime. I think the first reason is that even though um, Zijin Chen is also um, pretty sure born and raised, but definitely from Hangzhou, he doesn't seem to kind of put that emphasis on it. So one, I think it's actively that he's more interested in fleshing out his characters than he is in fleshing out the city or the setting. But then the other aspect of it is um, honestly, that that editing process. So, having translated two more of his books that are hopefully going to be published very very soon, I've seen where the Chinese side will cut things and say, "Well, we don't want to keep this in just in case," or "Well, we know that we mentioned where this professor worked before, but we would rather use a fake name this time around," which is just heartbreaking to me. It's like, but 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 in the first book we said it was this university. How can we not keep saying it's this university? So aspects that were in the original Chinese version. Or, you know, maybe it's a little bit anonymized, but a clued in Chinese reader would know where that's supposed to take place. That's all just kind of scrubbed out. Um, And so that's an issue of kind of the editing style, but also, you know, just the political context of those uh, publishers and what they have to deal with. So it's really disappointing because I do think that makes almost any story in any genre better to have that very specific detail and to make the reader feel like there's 
you know, sitting on the shoulder of the main character or somehow floating right behind them and experiencing every step along with the main character. This this is um, maybe dubious, <laughs> dubious logic I'm using here, but um, how about the nature of the crimes? Because um, the untouched crime, okay, mm-hmm. again, spoilers, um, we have sort of like a, a justified killing in a way that if, yeah, a, a bad guy is offed, uh, a good slash morally gray clever guy does what he can to um, cover it up and things play out from there and the truth is or some of the truth is slowly revealed Um, so it's quite morally complex Um, in Second Sister it's like not to denigrate it it's a little bit like an episode of Columbo Um, we have a a real uh, slime bag did the crime and Mm -hmm. our um, quirky detective and his um, I was going to say nice guy nice girl sounds weird his um Ordinary, slash sidekick <laughs> yeah her ordinary the what do you call that the straight man the straight woman naive the, the luddite straight woman naive um <laughs> tags along and they get yes. to the bottom of things as well so it feels more conventional in a way um mystery wise well absolutely because as yeah. we said chan ho Kei is reading so much <clears throat> of Arthur cronin doyle and all these other classic western authors so i feel like um he thinks that's important to show like this is the world in chaos. And then at the end of the book, kind of chaos has to be resolved. That's, I feel like that's a tenet of crime fiction. Mm. Whereas in China, you don't necessarily have to play by those rules. You can decide to um, just kind of let the story take a different path or again, leave things very morally gray. You kind of end what feels like a chapter too early. Because somebody's not locked up and you're like, well, hang on. (laughs) Don't we have to lock up the bad guy at the end of a crime fiction novel? And it turns out in mainland China, you don't, which is just, I don't know why that is. It just seems to be the way that is. It's it's a sign that it's not North Korea or Mao Zedong's China that um, you don't have to have the heroes saving the day at the end of um, the novel. That's that's a nice (laughs) consolation, I suppose. Um, I was going to say, something occurred to me here. Um, it, this this goes into science fiction. Surprise, surprise. Um, I remember remembering a time I attended an online meeting with the London Chinese Science Fiction Group, where Han Song, the, the god Han Song, uh, the Chinese sci-fi writer, was present because the group were talking about his a story of his, admittedly his title I've forgotten. But the, the premise of that story is a guy realizes that everyone else is sleepwalking at night. The whole of society, when they go to bed and then they all sleepwalk and do another working day, doubling the, um, well, doubling the work hours of the society, but not necessarily doubling um, the, the productivity. And he's like the only awake man, or so it seems. And I think the conclusion of the story goes something like he just makes his peace with it. And lots of people in the like discussion wanted to ask Han uh, Song Laoshi, um, is this a critique of Chinese society? And I thought it was great. He was willing to go online and be open to questions like that. Yeah. And he did, I think he did say more or less like, yeah, this is a critique, a social critique in some ways, but he was never that blunt about it. And at one point he said something like, um, and this really stuck with me. He said, yeah, this is a representation of how I feel in a way about living in, in modern China but it's um it's not my manifesto for rising up this is a depiction of like the dark bargain you have to make where you have to accept that okay i'll go along with things um this 
a collective plan. Maybe it has some dark sides, but it might be a way to improve my life or hope for a better life. Like I think it was yeah. I I'm not doing injustice, but like you could I mean you could see that in any in any country really. But I think in China that in mainland China that feels really relevant. And maybe even in Hong Kong now, I've heard that um in the wake of basically the would you say the tightening of authoritarianism mainland style authoritarianism in hong kong produced a bit of an effect where all people can really do as a consolation is keep their heads down and work as hard as they were working because uh, it's that or leave really well even in second sister uh, you know it was published in 2017 um but it has i think once or twice even it says fleece or get fleeced that's what happens in hong kong mm. So there's this darker side. Maybe there's a couple more people in Hong Kong that are brave enough to say, these are my values and I'm going to stand up for them. But at the same time, there's still lots of people that are either just trying to get by or realize that they have to make a bargain. And for their own self-preservation, they go ahead with that bargain. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of how I feel um, living in the UK these days. Um, Not to throw shade at at England, but I've moved from (laughs) Scotland to England. And Scotland is far from the land of saints, but I do feel (laughs) the bargain got that little bit darker. Um, Mm, And I feel like I think living, if I had chosen to live in mainland China for the rest of my life, I think, you know, that's paying into the tax system um, of one of the most authoritarian regimes in the world. Like that's, that's a dark bargain as well. So Maybe we've stayed on this theme for too long, but I don't, I find it, what's the word? Um, it makes sense to me that even a book as subject to like careful editing, if not outright censorship, like The Untouched Crime is morally murky because it's a, it's a tricky society in a way. Yeah. Yeah. You're constantly navigating and it's not clear what you're navigating through. Yeah. Yeah. Right. My next, my next question was, um, Personae, um, personas, and I'm trying to use this word um, as its creator, Carl Jung. I, I know I said I was only going to get deep in genre three. That was nonsense because we're getting <laughs> Jungian. We are getting weird. Um, but one of his more less weird ideas or from earlier in his career was the idea of the persona. And this is basically a mask. The idea that all of the outward facing parts of our personality or even in a little beneath the skin as well, these are persona. These are different sort of masks or settings that we have as appropriate for different situations. And if anyone listening thinks, oh, I'm above that, I'm a real authentic person, think about your behavior with your mom or your dad versus with your friends versus with your workplace. It's actually healthy to have different personas for different situations. That's what a well-adjusted human being does. It's not inauthentic at all. But um, in this novel, we have, um, I guess, persona operating normally, um, normal human behavior, but then a lot of the characters have um, proper Dis- disguise personae as as a disguise um and i noted my feeling is this is far more applies to the male characters um in and chung nam but i wanted to ask do you do you agree with that or do you think we could say something interesting about um i or um you're right yeah I mean, because she tries to be the perfect daughter. They don't go over that relationship very much. But, you know, she's never asking for more from her parents because she knows that there's not enough money. Um, And yet she's trying to be cool with her friends, you know, trying to impress her boyfriend, trying to impress Lily. Um, And uh, 
even like to her greater classmates, she's trying to show that she's not that affected from the sexual assault that she experienced. Mm -hmm. So she is navigating a lot of different, um, here I go with navigating again, (laughs) but she's just, she's in a lot of different situations. And I guess she's that kind of person that aims to please. So in order to seem like the perfect insert noun here, you know, the perfect sister, the perfect friend, the the perfect perfect second sister. Yes. (laughs) She uh, makes herself seem like a certain person. And yet the way that Ai is so surprised by the things that she does, uh, that suggests that she isn't, um, she isn't just one person. She must have had many personas and used them kind of on a regular basis. Like we all do. Right. Um, I'm going to drop another reference here. Um, Do you know much of Twin Peaks? Nope. <laughs> okay, right. All right. I won't spoil anything, but um, Twin Peaks is set in a little town in um, uh, Washington State in the US, uh, like in the, the mountain, between the mountains and the forests and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, events are kicked off with the discovery of the dead body of a, what is she, like the homecoming queen, this extremely popular teenage girl, Laura Palmer. And a lot of the plot of the first and even the second season is learning about all the double, triple, quadruple lives she led um, before she was murdered by, well, I'm not going to say who, who killed her, but um, there's a whole, it's, it's, it seems almost crazy um, just how many connections and lives and personas she had um, that only isolated bubbles of people knew about. Um, and even then they'd only know one or two of the personas. So there, she it's almost like she it's to the point of impossibility the um mm-hmm. the kind of thing she adopted and a lot of it was like it would be a lot of it parallels your man a lot of it's um having been a victim of abuse or putting on a brave face or um maybe in a way that Shioman is not trying to be more grown up than she really is um yes that's, yeah. I don't know if Shioman does that I don't remember but I'm sure that's a real thing for a lot of teenage I guess girls and boys, but it probably is a much more dangerous mm-hmm. world to walk in f- for a girl. But yeah, there's someone, um, some fan of the show did something quite funny. They they tracked all the classes she was supposed to be taking in school and then pieced together um, all the other activities she was doing using as much information as the show provided about like what day she did the things on, how long they would have taken. And they tried to work out like um, what was her weekly schedule. And it was literally, she would never stop. She would never sit down because she had all these um, <laughs> roles and it, it was just so perfect. Um, it was a great visual illustration of like how stretched thin this, this girl was. And that seems like a really good parallel for the investigation into what Shoman was doing with herself. I'll, I'll admit that N has many sides to his personality. He seems like the complete bastard towards his clients. And he seems like, um, you know, the chess player that seems to always win towards anybody who's in a triad or in some kind of gang. Um, and yet he can smoothly transition to the business world or be the most interesting guy in a bar. So he definitely has his different personas that he's, you know, very um, capable of switching between. And Chang Nam is equally fluent, I would say, at showing a certain personality at work and then um, 
when he's on his own, he's doing other things. But uh, yeah, I, I think that almost all of the characters have something. You could argue that this older sister, Anyi, like doesn't even realize how most people have different personas in different situations. Um, <laughs> however, even she, you know, she hides her grief from her colleagues and kind of just tries to be a, a good employee without explaining like, oh, I might need this or, you know, right now I'm struggling to focus on work. She's hiding all of those problems from people. And I would argue that that is also a way of putting up a mask. For sure. Yeah. Oh, what was I going to say? Yeah. I was going to say, follow, follow on from what you said about N there. He seems like, a, he, he, he also makes me think of Laura Palmer's impossible timetable because everything that he pulls off seems like hang on a minute how does how does he have the time how does he have the um sort of mental capacity to juggle all these balls at once yeah is he sleeping yeah exactly yeah is he sleeping <laughs> right um it's like it's not like it's not believable but like how does he have the capacity to do it it feels different though because his um the things he is doing all have a very clear goal it's machine like in a way whereas um like mm-hmm. a showman or a Laura Palmer style um juggling of a million balls feels a lot more um like you're not in control you're juggling you're the doing balls it to survive yeah, yeah to keep them in the air not to um i don't know perform an amazing feat i totally agree totally agree the next point i had was about social disconnection which almost feels too easy to bring up talking about the internet or a great big city like hong kong but i do think it's true that um it's it's so true it's boring to even say that um the online world or having 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 a living in a world that's been shaped by the internet is can be socially disconnecting, despite all the virtual um, connectivity. Do you think we see that in the book? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I mean, especially because that's what N is exploiting all the time. So you make these assumptions, or your brain uses shortcuts all the times, and that's how and will just put out a little link onto your phone and you click the link and all of a sudden he has access to your entire phone. So just assuming that your phone is secure is enough to um, <laughs> get N to find a way in and get all of your info. Um, but I mean, it's more, this question I think is more related to relationships. So before I run away on a tangent, I think that it, it's possible to be disconnected with people that you think you know well, as we said before, but also online, if um, if you're just reading about them and you've never actually met them, then you can just assume that what the forum says is true. And so you're completely unaware of what's really happening. And even if it is someone that you do know in person, but you mainly interact with them online, you might not really understand who they are. So take some digging and take <laughs> someone with super uh, superpowers like N to figure out the full extent of a person, I guess. Yeah, you said in your um, your your notes that you sent me that characters or people in real life who realize that the internet is just a tool, and I guess not an end in itself, are happier. So if you can, if you know what you want out of it and you use it for that, and then you don't overinvest further than that, then yeah. it doesn't have to be a, a drain on you, or it doesn't have to be something that reprograms your brain uh, without you knowing it. And I think. That seems pretty true. That's that's my experience uh, running the social media for my podcast. It's a much more chill experience than um, being a mindless zombie consumer of social media, which I also do, because <laughs> um, using it for specific goals um, mm-hmm. doesn't put me under all the weird abstract 
social um, drives. It's just it's just a numbers game, and it's a numbers game that it doesn't matter if I lose, you know. Um, and that yeah. feels it feels like a lighter load than the weird whatever weird thing all the rest of the internet does to my brain when I'm just being myself and not the the podcast guy. I think it's really healthy to see the internet as a tool. Like it's a way to make my work easier or it's a way to keep in touch with family. That's really far away, things like that. Um, But because of the way some websites, you know, they have their algorithms, they have their teams designing them to be as addictive as possible. It's also very easy to forget like, no, this is just a tool. And right now I don't want to do this kind of work. So I need to turn off the tool. I need to set the tool down, whatever it is. Um, (laughs) But sometimes uh, seeing somebody else not understand how the internet works or, you know, just be completely uh, attacked by the internet helps you remember like, oh yeah, this is something where I have to actively make choices rather than sleepwalking into a big mess. So Mm -hmm. it's helpful to read even in a fiction context. Totally. The problem with the internet is uh, other people are there. If it was just, um, (laughs) if it was all just Google Docs and um, web apps, that would be lovely. But um, yeah. <laughs> but if other people weren't there, it wouldn't it wouldn't be fun, or it wouldn't be the awful, wonderful thing it is. We wouldn't be talking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I put a last question there. Do we see a way out by the end? I guess I don't really know what I mean by that because um, in a way, you could say it's a bad ending because Nai has been initiated into the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends if if you end it on her ending then it's harder to see the answer to that question but chapter 10 um exclusive content uh exclusive exclusive content on the translated chinese fiction podcast yes you heard it here first folks <laughs> chapter 10 um was added in the english translation and so then we see kind of the way out for two other characters um, we'll, we'll just leave that a little um, ambiguous. But basically, there's a bit of misdirection running through the novel, as Jeremy explains. And the reader is kind of supposed to believe that Violet Toe is being helped by her brother, and that brother seems to kind of be Chung Nam. Then we realize that Chung Nam has no relation to Violet at all. But Chung Nam is still a bastard. He still does terrible things and is still connected to Ai just in another way. So while it does kind of make sense by the end of chapter nine, we never really understand who Violet's brother is unless you're reading really, really closely. And so adding chapter 10 to kind of see what happens and to see like how he decides to build a new life for Violet, right? She's not just relying on her library forums and her classmates. She feels like she has a family and she has, you know, like a a house where it feels more like a home. I think all of that does kind of answer the question of when you see your brother every day and you're not just texting him, then uh, that can improve your life a whole lot. That can make you realize what's important and what you care about. So yeah, I think chapter 10 actually answers that question. Yeah. Yeah, I have family members who I much prefer being around in person to to online. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess there's probably, I couldn't think of who they are, but I might know people I prefer talking to online than in real life, but no names spring to mind. And that's probably a good thing. Um, Well, I mean, relationships need tending. Yeah, true. Communication is easiest when you're able to see that person in their micro expressions and you can read the room, quote unquote, Mm. and it gets more and more difficult if uh, you don't have that nuance. So 
I think for most relationships, if it's one that you value, the more FaceTime you get, like literal face-to-face time you get, probably the better. But if it's, you know, if it's a professional relationship, if it's an acquaintance, then it might not be such a big deal if you're seeing them face-to-face as often. Very true. Wise words. Um, (laughs) Right. So in my little notes here, I've written, let's step back from the obscene and talk about what it means. Although we haven't, it's not the most... It's not a it's not a grisly gutsy book. The the obscene stuff is basically the villain and what he tries to do to to girls like Shoman. Um, yeah, I, this is a complete side question, but um, I know some crime fiction has like a, a definitely like a lot of British crime fiction goes out of its way to be sort of grim and bitter, noirish, mm. um, or horrifying. Mm. But um, I don't know this one. I think you did feel more like a classic detective story. I didn't feel like I was in a, a noir world. I guess it depends. I think um, if if you read the the posts on popcorn and you think, oh my God, if that was happening to me, I could not go back to school. That mm. kind of stuff can be, maybe psychologically, can also feel very noir and grim. Um, you know, the rumor mill or mm. people being accused of being a slut. Like I found that pretty... Um, not scary per se, but um, Dark. something that I could relate to. And yeah, something that uh, if that happened to me, I would find that to be very bleak. bleak it's right. just, it's a, it's a different, it's a different approach. It's not like the, oh, the fog on the moor and, <laughs> yeah. you know, you feel the weather and you know that the city is uh, kind of sinking its closet to you. It's not that kind of dark. Yeah, like for all for all we said about how the city, uh, the novel makes Hong Kong sound um, like a, a hamster wheel of hard work and um, economically mm-hmm. oppressive. Maybe I'm just saying this because I was a tourist both times, but parts of the book did make me want to go back and soak it all in. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, we're we're getting off topic here. Um, the topic <laughs> I'm trying was trying to get to was the crime genre. Um, so first things first, um, we actually met. Uh, in a genre fiction, Chinese genre fiction um, setting. It was that that um, one symposium I'm constantly bringing up on the show run by the Leeds Centre for New Chinese Writing. And the genres that the symposium was focused on were two in particular. It wasn't genre in general per se. It was um, uh, sci-fi and crime. And that is that is how the episode on the untouched crime came about. Um, yeah. But I wanted to ask you, um, before... I guess before reading and translating The Untouched Crime, had you had much contact with uh, Chinese crime novels uh, or like since then as well? Um, do you feel like you're a, um, a font of knowledge on the genre <laughs> in, in Chinese? I think would be the best Chinese response to that. No, I, I don't find myself to be a font of knowledge. Um, but also I think that um, there's not as much that comes through in translation and I'm certainly not reading enough in the original Chinese to kind of see the whole field. I have read Death Note, which you've also read. I've read a bit of The Evil Hypnotist, which is also by Zhou Hao Hui. That has not mm. been translated yet to my knowledge. But generally, I think we kind of covered this earlier. It's just that mainland Chinese mysteries slash crime fiction have an advantage in that they don't seem to have set rules. There's not necessarily an end point that they have to reach, and there's not necessarily uh, certain things that the main character has to say. So that ambiguity can be kind of fun. Uh, However, um, because they're 
there aren't as many rules. And because for whatever reason, stories often get published a little bit too quickly. Stuff isn't always edited as carefully. There can be a lot of bugs. And by bug, I mean like a plot hole or an inconsistency where you think, hey, this character wouldn't do that (laughs) or, you know, any kind of plot hole. So I find that to be kind of annoying in crime fiction. And um, if you're really accustomed to like a Scandi noir where everything fits perfectly, or if you just, you read so much crime fiction that you have very high expectations, then maybe Chinese crime fiction can surprise you. And that can be a good surprise or a bad surprise. We just need more of it, I think. <laughs> we, just, we need more to compare and more stuff translated. Yeah, that brought two things to mind. I'll, hopefully I'll, I'll describe one, then I won't have forgotten the other. Um, one was, um, I remember when I was researching or doing some background uh, snooping for the episode I did with Zach Halusa on Death Notice, I was looking on um, good old Doban uh, and using auto-translate because my... Chinese reading is not good. Um, and I was reading reader reviews of The Untouched Crime. And I noticed a lot of them were talking about like the level of the crime novel in China. Like this is a domestic domestic mm-hmm. crime fiction and saying this is um, the best product. <laughs> Maybe this, this was Google Translate speaking and not the Chinese, but like this is the best product Chinese crime writers have put together. Or, oh, it's not quite as good. There's this plot hole, that plot hole. Or no, it's great. There's no plot holes. And I remember thinking, damn, are these people really, is ever, does everything have to be um, analyzed through like national strength comparison with other countries? <laughs> God yeah. damn it. Nationalistic, um, you know, cursing in my head. But it's not like those concerns aren't valid. Like if my, if, if Scottish writers or even writers in the UK were consistently putting out crap compared with um, other stuff that was available in English, yeah, maybe it would be a concern I had. And the fact that plot holes are an issue, that's, yeah, that's a really genre specific problem of attention to detail that um, like if, um, if Ed, I, I know from doing this show and reading up on Chinese lit editors are just less of a, a thing. Um, yes. They, they don't have as much authority. They don't do as much work. And as far as we can tell in mainland China, I'm not yeah, going to speak for Taiwan and Hong Right. Kong. Right. Yeah. In the mainland, as far as we can tell. And I guess some genres like fantasy not to shit on fantasy or like literary magical realism which aren't under such strict rigor to make a sense on a really basic plot level they can they might even benefit from a lighter editor's touch and more power for the author but here like in crime fiction it it falls it stands or falls on its tightness and lack of plot holes so i realized i was wrong to mentally accuse those reviewers of being um power obsessed nationalists yeah. <laughs> or picky about those those little things because um that just means they're fans of the genre really and that yes they yeah. they care about writers in their own country which is you know you can't hate on someone for that that's silly mm. so that that's chinese crime novels um yes the other thing i was going to say about that was um if you compare that to reception of other genre fiction translated to english from chinese um I don't think it has any cheerleaders and it doesn't have any, perhaps the the translator who's done the most Chinese to English crime translation might be you. <laughs> if you, if you get those two other, um, the two other books out. Yeah. You, it, I think it would be you. Um, because like, if I think of Chinese sci-fi that has so many um, cheerleaders in translation, of course it's got Ken Leo. Mm-hmm. There's uh, the academic Mingwei Song or Song Mingwei. There's, a ton of former guests of this show um 
um, like uh, um, Shweting Ni that we had on the show, um, who's also a translator, who's interested in the genre. Liu Guanzhao, our, our pal, who uh, I don't know if that was your first time meeting him, but we were with him yeah. at the Genre mm-hmm. Fiction Symposium. He and Angela Chan running something like the London Chinese Science Fiction Group. So that genre has all these stands and fans yes. who are out there shouting about it and studying it um, for fun and academically. And uh, Wuxia is the other big one that jumps to mind. That's got um, that's got its fans. It's got translators who um, are focused on it, write blog posts about it and stuff. And then there's Wuxia's cousin, Xianxia, the web fiction, which is it's it's more of an online thing uh appropriately perhaps but like there are people who focus on it and are somewhat expert in it and can speak to english language audiences or newbies about it but um like i don't know where i would go if i was looking for an education in chinese crime maybe um jeffrey kinkley the gent from the us um he would be an expert but he i he's lucky enough to not be so online. He's just on Facebook. I think he's not out there on Twitter firing out hot takes on Chan Ho Kei and Sijin Chen. Yeah, I, I remain optimistic. I think that in the future, we'll get more attention for the genre and hopefully get more authors translated. Um, I came across a lot of interesting names while just reading about the other books that Chan Ho Kei has been reading. He did a really good job uh, kind of naming others and trying to give them a little tiny bit of spotlight in his interviews. So hopefully, you know, some publisher will take interest or um, some translator will take it upon themselves to say, this story is so awesome. We must bring it into the English language. Uh, There's still time, you know, there's still possibilities for it to happen, but I agree with you that it's not there yet. It doesn't have the attention or the fans the way sci-fi does. Yeah. I think not, not to be cynical here, but it doesn't have the, um, I think the the things that help Chinese sci-fi is just the, the political angle, especially with three body. Um, like it's just inevitable, the catch up with mainland China in terms of technology with the West. And if stuff is getting self-censored, then yeah. that social issues, you know, being a reflection of what China is really like, uh-huh. that angle is not possible. It gets yeah. scrubbed out before it gets translated and therefore you miss out on a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Wuxia has an advantage of like being a, a vehicle for, I don't know whether I want to put this in quote marks or not, but like the, the ancient China traditions, values, costumes, Whereas crime fiction, it's that little bit, it's sort of by necessity a little bit mundane and modern. Mm, yeah. So it doesn't have those um, those angles. Super fans. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, right. Okay. So I this is where I um, I, I get flashy. I, I I pirated an academic book just so. <laughs> <laughs> You're so honest. Yeah. Um, well, let me see who the author is. Maybe, maybe he's a sort of an end figure. Yeah, if Stephen Knight um, come at me, send you drones. <laughs> <laughs> he, I mean, he's him. Um, I I get get the impression from the book that he's a Marxist scholar. So really, he shouldn't. He should be all for a little bit of um, digital transmission of learning material, consciousness raising materials. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, so. I'm just going to read a few segments. Um, this might take me a little minute and I haven't got any pre-prepared thoughts on them, but I think those, they should give us something to riff on. 
So here's here's the first one. It's just from the intro. A less evaluative approach has tried to establish why crime fiction is so compelling. W.H. Auden and C. Day Lewis, writing as Nicholas Blake, see the form as a substitute for religious patterns of certainty. Ralph Harper, Gavin Lambert, and several psychoanalysts find the basis of its patterns in the psychic anxieties of readers, uh, writers and readers. Another type of analysis has seen social attitudes and the pressures of the modern environment as the basic drive in the crime fiction. Colin Watson and Thomas Narsajak have in different ways related the stories to the collective patterns of modern experience. Uh, before I jump to the next quote, I should say this book is called Form and Ideology in Crime Fiction, and it's from the 80s, I think. Yeah, it's from 1980. So it's not brand new. Uh, okay, next quote. Um, oh, this is just a really short thing I've highlighted. It said, before the detective appeared, there were stories that suggested how crime could be controlled. Um, I think that's interesting. Although how we'll get to it, I don't know. And then this next thing, this is a really long section of text I've highlighted. So bear with me here. Throughout all this material runs a belief in the unity of society and organic metaphors are very often used. Crimes injurious to their country, acts harmful to the body of the state. Society, the stories imply, can deal with its own aberrances without mediation, without specialists. The watch will arrest an identified criminal and the courts will pass sentence, but no skilled agent is needed to detect the criminal. The processes of the law are in the background and its officers serve society only in established and variable ways. They are not independent agents acting upon society. This whole organic view emerges strikingly in the common feature where a criminal is executed or hung in chains near the scene of a crime. In many ways, the stories are shaped to give a model of unmediated social control of crime. I'm going to pause here and jump in and say he's talking about like very early Victorian crime stories. Um, mm. I'm going to resume the quote here. Um, it's easy enough to see that these two systems of detecting crime, personal guilt and social, social observation could only develop in a deeply Christian world with small social units where everybody is known, where hiding is hard and socialization tends to be public. That had been the general situation in medieval England, though the notorious difficulty of finding and convicting medieval criminals suggests that the crime control system implicit in the Newgate calendar, that must be the book he's studying, was never more than a brave hope. But in the period when the stories were printed, the implied social model was disappearing. Not everybody was devo uh, devotedly Christian. Many people, believe, uh, many people lived in enlarged and increasing conurbations, and there was a hardened and relatively successful criminal class hostile to the normal society, which had, in London at least, in, uh, in London at least, its own fortress, later known as the Rookeries of Central London. I guess I just wanted to say, doesn't this sound almost totally opposite of um, Second Sister? Interesting. Hmm. Where like there's no detective, society has the means to sort out the criminal just because it's functional. It, it's able to sort it out itself, and um, and what else? It's anyone can be easily found identified because yeah. the society is made of so small social units where everyone's known, yes. no one's anonymous. And it mentions later that starts to change with the with urbanization, which you could see is the very start on a trajectory towards what we're living in now, digital anonymity. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of um, kind of classic English um, English language, Anglophone uh, authors that always set their stories in tiny villages. Um, 
Right. So yeah. you do get that uh, small town feel and everybody knows everybody and gossip is rife, that kind of thing. Whereas in Second Sister, even though people know each other, it's, you know, they they have to narrow down the list of possible candidates using all kinds of uh, tricks and the help of computers to really make things work. So in that respect, I would say kind of the approach to the genre is really different. But you still have to kind of set up your set of characters. And once you've introduced that finite number, you can't pull out a new person at the end, I suppose. Mm. And more importantly, the the thing you said at the beginning in terms of there's a unity of society, I think through the popcorn forum, there's still this feeling that um, society still believes bad guys should be punished. Society still believes that someone who... Uh, commits sexual assault on a train is a sleaze ball. You know, there's still a, a, a sort of unity, and people like Chung Nam are still considered to be awful by everyone. It's just that they can escape detection a little bit better. Right. Yeah. There's there's some moral um, what's the word continuity there, and it's yes, pretty yeah. as we said, it's stronger than it might be other places in the world. So uh, it's it's interesting. I do think that the genre has to evolve, or as Chan Ho Kei says, it, it needs to be localized a little bit to make sense for the setting that it's put in or for the author that's writing about the society that they know best. Hmm. But at the same time, uh, that, that kind of resolving of, you know, this is someone who's acting completely against our agreed values of what is just or of what is fair. And at the end, we're going to catch them. <laughs> doesn't matter how big the city is, we're going to catch them. And that's how we can understand the parts of our society that need fixing and the parts of our society that we like and we want to keep promoting. We're, we're saying there that, yeah, there, we agree. Um, there's still some kind of societal agreement that people like Chung Nam are, are, are criminals and they shouldn't get a free pass. Do you think it's significant that um, although we have a solo detective like we would have had in Sherlock Holmes, mm. as far as I remember, he's not really working with the, the police at all. It's um, justice is totally outsourced to this guy who's working in um, like the black, the black online and offline market. Do you think there's anything we can say about that? I mean, I mean, again, it's a little bit of that persona thing. For the most part, he wants people to think that he's a complete loner and that he's, you know, he's not going to pass on information to others or he's not um, supposed to be associated with anyone else, good or bad. But at the end, when he wants to take Chung Nam down, it's important for him to kind of build that case. So he um, he sends individual emails to six people that he knows uh, were deeply affected by Chung Nam's actions and says, you need to approach the police. They've just received information about all the terrible crimes he's committed. So at the end of the day, N is actively using Hong Kong's justice system, criminal justice system, to take down Chung Nam rather than just making him lose his job. Or just, you know, making him lose money or something. He specifically wants that person in jail and being punished according to society's agreed system of punishing these kinds of criminals. You know, he offers or he pretends to offer like, oh, shouldn't we take down that construction company that never compensated your family for your dad's death, that kind of thing. And he leaves it hanging there. But again, I think that's him pretending that he doesn't care and he's... He's only going to act like a knight in shining armor if there's an individual that will benefit from it. But actually, he's keenly aware of what society thinks is right and is wrong and kind of 
I don't know if I would say the criminal justice system is a tool to him, but he's more than happy to use it if that's going to be the most effective way to take somebody down. Mm. It's just all, he'll use all the possibilities. He doesn't think that he needs to work outside of the system or that he cannot work as a team. He, you know, he has all kinds of folks that help him complete his job. He's not completely a lone wolf, which is kind of cool. Yeah, no, that's I. I confess I'd forgotten exactly how the the ending went down, but no, that's a really good point that he's not the pure vigilante we might have thought at first, and that the the two ways that you, the examples you gave there are interesting because he doesn't he doesn't become the vigilante um, seeking trying to bring about a justice that is not too controversial against one nasty individual, like he doesn't show up and headshot Chung Nam or something. Yes, but he's uh, also got what can I say? He's not totally rogue either. Like if he wanted to, he could bring down this huge company and it would be justified, but that would be a very radical move with massive consequences. And it would imply some maybe deeper rejection of some norms, the, the business economic norms of the city, something that who knows, maybe this um, Marxist academic Stephen Knight would have <laughs> cheered on, but um, N doesn't take it there because yeah. I don't know, he probably knows that's a very huge step despite him having very far-reaching powers and doing some pretty bold things. Uh, he doesn't, what am I trying to say? He doesn't do stuff just because he can. He exactly. has some self-imposed limits. Um, yeah, the, I think we may have, uh, or I may have drawn attention away from arguably the more interesting bit I quoted at the start about uh, psychic anxieties. So stuff people worry about in a particular um, society and it's underlined here that it's a modern society, that crime novels are modern. Yes. Um, like there's obviously some obvious stuff about the ways we could be attacked from the internet. But here, here's the question I can ask. Do you think in terms of our fears and anxieties, N or Chung Nam is the scarier character? Because N is the guy who could destroy your life absolutely using mm -hmm. any online tool. Um, Chung Nam does nastier stuff, but he's a little... I don't know, they represent very different kinds of danger, internet danger. One's, mm -hmm. one's nasty and personal and less omnipotent. And then N is, what, what can I say? It seems that's, like nothing can stop him. Yeah, that's yeah. like the internet nuke. If that comes for you, game over. Which, which one do you think is scarier? Yeah, I think N is definitely scarier, but fortunately with great power comes great responsibility. And he seems to be able to keep his power in check. Mm. He's just so much smarter. So again, he's working at a higher level. He's able to play someone like Chung Nam, who even would notice if his phone was hacked remotely and things like that. Like he's able to just use social engineering and other tricks to figure out where his weaknesses are and still take him down. Whereas Chung Nam doesn't even suspect. He's like, oh, Americans are so friendly. You know, he just explains away anything that N does as, oh, well, that must, that must be just because life is great for me right now. Everything is going the way I want it to go. So I think that's less scary because he's just, he's slightly more predictable. So either you give him space and you don't mess with him, then you're safe from Chung Nam, or you kind of like with enough conversations, I think a lot of people could realize what Chung Nam is all about and therefore they would still be safe. Whereas N, it takes ages to figure out what he's about. And he might show you like level one of his thinking, but actually he's also operating on two through 11. So yeah. it, it's so hard to predict. And then therefore it's so hard to protect yourself if he decides to kind of unleash his wrath on you. 
Yeah, that's um, that's a really good point. I said before that I think myself and probably loads of other people, although they might have some intelligence, they maybe overestimate it and flash it about too much. Because mm-hmm. like, I've, yeah. I've met people who I thought, wow, you're very smart, but don't you know it? You're smart because you're showing me you're smart and I'm very impressed. But the people who've um, impressed me more, and I think it's fair to say have sometimes spooked me, are the ones who are obviously very smart and perceptive and have a lot mm-hmm. of common sense. They're not floating away in the clouds. Um, they're very pragmatic, but you can see that they have a deeper abstract grasp on lots of stuff, but like they don't they don't flash it at all. Those are, They're usually quite nice people, but... Um, some of them I met, yeah, 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 and um, that makes me all the more jealous that they're also able to be <laughs> jealous of them that they're able to be warm. Um, mm-hmm. The opposite of Chongnam, who's cold as a fish, I suppose. But then occasionally, once or twice, I've maybe met someone like that, and I can't tell if either they have they have they don't have the warmth, or you can't tell if it's an act or not. And if you start, I find if I start thinking about those people trying to work out how perceptive they really are, or what are what are they really thinking about? Um, the thing that scares me is that I have no idea because they might be several dimensions above me in the complexity of their how they go about their day to day life. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've met as many people like that before, but I completely agree. When you feel like, oh, there's a depth here that I'm not even plumbing, <laughs> it's just no. Oh, that can be really unsettling. Yeah. So our, our next section is the Chinese word of the day. And this is weirdly one I ran into because you, you let me know in advance what you've chosen. Um, for the uh, Patreon uh, bonus episode I recently recorded, I reread um, Coming Up Light by Chen Xiufan. <laughs> Speaking of um, people who probably got 5D brains, um, I think he's one. And that story has a few different memes referenced in it, or at least internet uh, mm-hmm. slang or events, some from the global or Western internet and others from the Chinese internet. And one of them is actually the term you've chosen today that is also in Second Sister. So mm-hmm. do you want to unveil it for the listeners? Our word of the day is 人肉搜索引擎. That's translated as human flesh search engine. Sounds gross, but it's it's not as gross <laughs> as it sounds. Um, do you True. want to explain it for the listeners? Uh, So basically, that's when a lot of users on a platform or somewhere on the internet provide personal information about someone who allegedly did something wrong. They might provide an address, phone number, photographs, school or workplace. Um, It happens in China a lot, it seems. But I mean, it also happens in other countries. So yeah, they came up with a word for it. And because it's a lot of different humans contributing that information, that's where the human flesh part comes in. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I know there's a Wikipedia page which um, breaks it down and mentions that it's used for, I guess one word we use in English is doxing, um, yes. but mm-hmm. collective doxing, like as an individual, yes. I, I, I could try and dox someone, but in English, that sorry, I could dox someone on my own or me and you as a team could dox someone or I could team up with 10 people who I know in real life or only online, we could dock someone and unveil all their, like their address and their secret history. But the English word doesn't specify whether I'm an individual, a, a duo or a huge team. Uh, yeah. Whereas this Chinese term is specifically like crowdsourced sleuthing. The hive is going at hive, it. Yeah. yeah. And the, the Wikipedia page does mention that the human flesh search engine can involve some offline research as well. But the point is it's net, it, it's a collaborative work done online. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I don't know, let's say you and me want to 
or use a cartoonish example, we want to go after Xi Jinping and dox him. Um, <laughs> and maybe uh, I'm on holiday to the Canary Islands and I managed to socially engineer my way into the bank vaults or the computer system that has his offshore account. Then I would relay that information to you. And what made that Humanify search engine is that we shared the, shared the info online, even though the majority yes. of the sleuthing was offline. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, the other thing I was going to mention is um, it can be quite nasty as well. Like, have you ever heard of um, 4chan? Yes. Yeah, the um, the like the troll website. They there's a form of dox like human flesh search engine doxing they do there. They have a very um, politically incorrect term for it. What do they call it? Weaponized autism. So that they describe themselves as oh being. Oh my these... god. <laughs> yeah, it's. It's that's the sense of humor they have there, I guess, um, where they consider them they're happily happy to identify as as like sh- socially unadept shut-ins, but they their joke is that they collectively use the power against people they want to target. Um, mm-hmm. Could be something really horrible, or it could be like something less personal, more political. But that's the term they use. <laughs> it's it's a useless term for a book because it's so on PC. You wouldn't really want to give it what's the word. Um, validate yes. it by using yes. it in your in your everyday speech whereas the, the chinese term sounds a bit icky but um it's not as i guess it's as far as i'm aware it's not in one icky corner of the internet it's a bit more normalized as, as but far I'm, as, but I'm glad you mentioned it though because yeah. um it's important to realize that it happens in every country it's kind of a human instinct to want to collect information to want to take somebody down if you're fairly certain that they did something bad uh, rather than taking the time to double check and fact check, I think even if um, 4chan is not exactly the same as some other websites, it's still that's an instinct that all kinds of people have all over the world. Yeah, and it's interesting what the kind of things galvanize people. I don't know if it's a thing in the states. I know it's a thing in the UK, um, where there are like vigilante groups who coalesce around trying to um, trap pedophiles basically that's a thing they'll do um and i don't know how much they cooperate with the police but that is an example from the uk of like a collective maybe not a human flesh search engine but a digitally coordinated group of people seeking their own idea of what justice should be against people who are breaking a really fundamental social norm doing something nasty like chung nam does yeah i'm not sure if that exists in the u.s so I'm afraid we'll have to leave that unanswered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't really want to go too far down that wormhole. Next question. I know that I know I said miscellaneous questions would be light and I totally <laughs> failed to keep it light, but this next one should be. Um so recently we replaced compare uh, the book with a, a drink, because I think that's been drained dry. Instead, we're doing pair the story with a piece of music. So what piece of music would you um Want the listeners to listen to as they read the book or set the movie adaptation to yeah um so i would recommend ad infinitum which is a song by oh the city and it just barely has words in it but i think it would work very well as a soundtrack that kind of plays in the background while people are shooting along the mtr or racing behind somebody in a van
So another transport related.、Um, I suppose navigate、yeah. navigation navigating the city. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, were you going to say something? No, go ahead. Okay.、Um, yeah, I thought of one too.、Um, it's it's the soundtrack for for Mr. Robot that I, that TV show I mentioned before. Especially the soundtrack for season one, I I don't know if it lost its、um, originality for the later seasons or if just the music dropped off a bit. But for the soundtrack for season one is really iconic. It's um it's an electronic. It's very sparse and moody and weird. The the best bits of it um in the show you'd associate with the main character、uh, Elliot because he's really alienated and lost. And although he's an amazing hacker. Like his mental health basically is always in in the bin. It's he's really not a happy,、um, functional human being on lots of levels. Whereas the hack, our hacker in this story, N, as I know, he might not be the happiest guy, but he seems totally in control of himself、um, emotionally. If he's got turmoil under the surface, we don't see it. So if I was gonna、um, play the music as like a character's theme, it would have to be、uh, Nai as she. Grieves and gets thrown in way over her head into the digital、yeah. world, or Chongnam because clearly he's not very mentally healthy or happy. Interesting. Yeah. So there we go. When the film version of the book is made, we can include both songs. Brilliant. <laughs> um, and yeah, I should clarify for listeners: I'm not thinking of any particular part of the soundtrack.、Uh, that's just, a good point. That's a lot of songs,、thing. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good hour.、Um, probably the main theme, which I will not hum because I would, I would. You can insert it. it. You can put it in post. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs>、um, <laughs> right, next one. Now, this is going to be something freeloading listeners won't hear all of. I've I've introduced a new segment where I'm going to do bonus、uh, questions. So this will be up as its own episode on the show's、uh, Patreon or Patreon,、Ooh. which、yeah. uh, they can get to. Listeners, you can get to just go to patreon.com. Slash trichific t r c h f i c and you can hear the answer to this question. So here's the question for yourself, Michelle. We're going to look at the conventional definition of a psychopath, which I am just going to open up because I did not have. The- I think that's really interesting. Right. Um. I think we're good to um <laughs> close off the bonus question. I can feel my brain running out of juice. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Okay. Welcome back, freeloading listeners.、Um, I bet you would like to know what we just talked about. Well, it's all there on the Patreon, along with、um, oh, something like seventy bonus episodes now, averaging about half an hour long. There's there's a gold mine there. So so go seek it out. But、um, keeping keeping the ball rolling,、um, we're on to the very last questions for you, Michelle.、Um, they're the further reading questions. So some pointers for the listeners and pointers that. Hopefully, aren't behind Patreon paywalls.、Um, so, if listeners want to read more books like Second Sister,、uh, where could we point them?、Um, if you haven't read The Borrowed by Chan Ho Kei, definitely do. 
Um, it's also set in Hong Kong. It's also got the mysteries, um, and I really enjoyed it. If you're interested in other English fiction that takes place in a specific city, I would recommend Ian Rankin, whose stories are set in Scotland. There and also go. Ingrid Thoft. She was recommended to me by an algorithm on Storygraph. Uh, her novels are set in Boston, Massachusetts, and I went right through that trilogy. I really enjoyed her novels. Cool. I'm actually a bit stumped today. I can't think of any really good uh, recommendations apart from the other crime novels I've read on uh, read read for this show. Mm. Um, so I'll just say haven't read the Ian Rankin, but um, he's he's very popular in my family, and my family have fantastic tastes. So that must be a good sign. But also, um, the specific city he operates in is um, Edinburgh, and mm. there is a it's, we were men- we were mentioning earlier about dropping by real places i'm sure his books are good for that if you're ever in edinburgh you could do an ear and ranking tour and you can drop into his regular pub as well i've i've done that i did that when i was living in edinburgh that sounds so great <laughs> yeah it's pretty it's like the, the pub is very central and yet somehow manages to be a bit grim as well <laughs> I, I remember a lot of stone and you'll, you'll definitely know if you found it because there's pictures of of the guy himself inside got it how often he goes, I don't know, but um, I will. I'll, I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but I will put that in the show notes for listeners, along with your your book recommendations, Michelle. Um, right now, the very last question: What are you reading just now? I just started a book called "A Visit from the Goon Squad" by Jennifer Egan. Uh, it was a recommendation from my cousin. Shout out to Paul Dieter. Hello, Mister P. <laughs> it's really good. It's really fun. Does it have any? relation to to this one uh i think our discussions about persona and either fitting into society or deciding not to fit into society those decisions that we make every single day um that would definitely overlap but i'm only at the beginning so i don't know exactly what's going to happen all right cool were you waiting to ask what i might what i'm reading yes (laughs) all right so this one is interesting because there was a COVID scare in my workplace uh, this past last Monday, and they've asked us to work from home until we can do a PCR test. Mm-hmm. And in the UK, I've learned if you don't have a car and you're in a small town in the English countryside and you get sent PTR, PCR ke- test kits with missing pieces, yeah. or if there is no good priority post boxes in your town, if you're trying to post the thing off on a weekend, you're a bit buggered. So I've been rather delayed in my return to the office, which should, would be fine, except the book I was reading is on my desk there. <laughs> so oh. I've been um, cut off from my lovely book, which is a very weird, truly weird pseudo-philosophical book called Spinal Catastrophism, which is um, a J.G. Ballard style um, tracing of, or it's a tracing of a line of thought from Western thinkers, a sort of not very good science, but interesting line of thought that um, as you go down the spine or you go through um, the development of the human body, you're going back in geological time to earlier like biological states, just the same mm-hmm. as you tunnel through the ground. It doesn't really make a great deal of coherent sense. It's supposed to be <laughs> not completely rigorous, but philosophically interesting. And it's very dense and hard to read as well. So I was struggling through that but it's been set aside by COVID. So I picked up a much more rigorously scientific and readable book along similar lines that I got from the bookshop called Metazoa, which is about um, the origins of consciousness in animals. 
um, looking at mostly animals that live under the sea. Um, so I'm on, I'm on octopuses right now and cephalopods, cephalopods, I think they're called. But um, no idea. <laughs> my, my girlfriend corrected me on this. Um, but yeah, that's, um, that's what I'm reading. I really think it's got nothing to do with uh, Second Sister. And I don't know if I'm ever going to do a book for the show that will be relevant to those themes. But that's what I'm reading. I mean, being a wide, uh, reading widely is a great thing. And making crazy connections that nobody else can make is also fun. I guess um, what one, how it does relate to the show is I'm mining into stuff I read in the past um, so I can buy <laughs> some time to read some non-Chinese stuff. That's, that's really what's going on. There you go. Perfect. I think I have no more questions. Is there anything we've missed uh, that you're burning? You have a burning uh, desire to, to get out there into the microphone? I think we've covered everything. All right, cool. In that case, I'll say thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, we've come to the end of the show. So you probably know what's next. It's the plugs. Although I think this time I'm just going to do the really simple one, which is to direct you to the show's website. Loads of links in the show's show notes uh, point to just different spots on the website, especially the handy Trutrific links at the bottom. But if you're listening on a podcast provider where you can't get those links or you can't see them for whatever reason, for example, on iTunes, I just use a shortened version, then just go to the Trutrific homepage. That's uh, trutrific.podbean.com. T-R-C-H F-I-C.podbean.com. And there's loads of great stuff there. I've made a map which tracks like all the authors uh, hometowns and story settings on like a custom google map that is up there um there is art for every single episode i make a beautiful beautiful um sort of it was originally designed as a youtube thumbnail but um they're up on the site just as episode arts there there's a link to a place where you can get various episodes as transcripts in transcript form so handy if you've got um if you have some kind of inability to listen, uh, some, something that uh, hampers your access through auditory means, or if you just need a resource that you can copy and paste or search through with the old control F feature. It's only something like five episodes, but you know, it's there for you to enjoy. I have tags so you can browse the episodes by category. For example, we have one called Hong Kong Writers that this one will be going under. I may also have a crime fiction tag. I'll need to check that. But yeah, just all sorts of cool stuff is there. And that's the only plug I'm going to I'm gonna do today because I already plugged the Patreon twice in the intro and the main body. So it would be a bit of a piss take if I kept um, throwing, throwing that onto you guys. So I guess I'll just say the most important thing you can do for the show, and that is to spread the word. So tell anyone you know who you think might be interested. You never know. Telling people is free, costs nothing. Just a few seconds of your life and some air in your lungs. I'm sure you can spare that. Um, so yeah, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your teachers, tell your co-workers in the high intensity office job that you work in, you know, working hard or hardly working, as they say. Um, tell your network administrator and make sure that said administrator is not being impersonated by an anonymous figure accessing your network through the Tor browser because that could just end awfully for you. And speaking of ending, Zai Jian. Oh.